Hey, everybody, before we get started in today's episode, there's something that we want to say. Thank, thank you. you. This is our first episode since the Max Fun Drive. We want to thank you so much for supporting us. We got over 500 new upgrading and boosting supporters, and Woo-hoo. all of them, all of you, are now eligible to play in our tournament where two listeners will win the chance to play on a special mini episode of Go Fact Yourself. How exciting is that, Helen? Super exciting. I am very curious to know what kind of interesting topics that you, our listeners, uh, are obsessed with, you know, we can delve into. Indeed. So much delving is going to happen. So we're going to be in touch with everyone soon uh, who is eligible for that about how that's going to work. We also want to remind people that we are back for our first live in-person audience show in over what? two years. Yes, Helen, I hope I'm not breaking news. I, <laughs> has it been two years, It has Jamie? been over two years, almost two oh and a God, half years. Oh, my God. Am I finally going to hear the sweet, sweet sound of actual humans laughing? I plan on exactly that happening. So uh, make sure to uh, get your free tickets for that. It's going to be Saturday, June 18th at 7 p.m. at KPCC's Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena, which is in the Los Angeles area. You can go to kpcc.org slash go fact yourself live. What's that website, Helen? kpcc.org slash Go Fact Yourself Live. For free reservations and information, you do need to be vaccinated and boosted in order to be in the building. So make sure you get that done and bring your evidence of that. Thanks again so much, everybody, and enjoy this week's episode of Go Fact Yourself. Are you a real know-it-all? Do you annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually. Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we quiz the smartest people we know and find out why they love what they love. I'm Helen Hong. And now, socially distancing from our homes in Los Angeles, here's our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you so much, Helen. Wow, we have a pretty special episode today. Kind of by coincidence, we have both Nancy Cartwright, who, of course, is the voice of Bart Simpson and others on The Simpsons, and Al Jean, who's the showrunner on The Simpsons. I actually have seen, I believe, every episode of The Simpsons, which is over 30 seasons. How is that possible? (laughs) I'm sure what you mean is you look far too young to have been around when The Simpsons was first on the air, but uh, uh, no, it was a big deal. I was, I think I was actually in college when it first went on, and I remember people gathering around the community TV to watch The Simpsons because it, it was this revolution that something that that felt so anarchy and you know anti-establishment yeah, yeah. and and funny. I would record with the VCR. I'm dating myself oh, again. I would whoa. record every episode with the VCR, and then um, yeah, nowadays I just make sure to I just make sure to catch it. You know, there pe- a lot of people talk about oh, there was the golden era of The Simpsons, and it, it's not this anymore. There's always something enjoyable and heartwarming in every episode mm. of The Simpsons. Where are you in your Simpsons watching uh, career? I don't <laughs> think I've even seen maybe a third of them, to okay. be honest. Which is I, still I, 10 seasons of a sitcom. Yeah, so. I was going to say, I, that would be embarrassing if it was any other show, but yeah. it's still like quite a lot of episodes of The Simpsons. It's something that w- if I happen to be watching it, it, you're absolutely right. Like there's something hysterical and and kind of deep and meaningful in every single episode. And the characters are just, you know, they never change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they're all still the same age. <laughs> and they're, so, so it's like comforting, you know, that these characters that have, com- you know, we've changed 
changed and we've developed over all these years, but they're still exactly the same. I like to think that people think of us, the characters on this podcast, are the same and also have not changed <laughs> over the years, especially the aging part. Today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Helen, who is up first? She is the Emmy-winning voice of Bart Simpson on The Simpsons for more than 30 years and the author of I'm Still a 10-Year-Old Boy, which is now available as an audiobook on Audible. It's Nancy Cartwright. Hello, Nancy Cartwright. <laughs> Hi. Hi, you guys. So great to be here. I'm such a fan. Oh, my what? gosh. I, We're I, such I, fans. I've, I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's hilarious. I'm really looking forward to doing this. I'm a little bit scared, a little bit nervous, but please continue. <laughs> it's very trippy to hear your voice, which is so recognizable, and not see Bart Simpson. Really? You you think I sound... I don't sound like that. <laughs> no. I'm Nancy Cartwright. I'm Bart Simpson. <laughs> Well, of course, in addition to your work on The Simpsons, where you do Bart and many other characters, people also know your voice from shows like Rugrats, Animaniacs, Kim Possible, and many, many more. And this book that just came out as an audiobook is an updated version of a book you wrote over uh, 20 years ago. Tell us about yeah. why you wanted to update it. Well, so many things have happened with the show and for everybody since then. So I thought yeah. this would be a good time. I, I get a lot of fan mail and all this stuff going on social media and people want to know. So, I mean, we're starring Hollywood Boulevard and we performed at the Hollywood Bowl. Gee whiz, all this stuff. And, and on the audiobook, it's super special and very different than the original one that I did in 2000 because this has got clips yeah. from all kinds of c celebs that were on our show, like Meryl Streep and J.K. Simmons. Uh, I talk about 50 Cent and working with Anne Hathaway. And wow. it's really fun. And also my mentor, Dawes Butler, who was the voice of Huckleberry Hound and Quick Draw McGraw. We mm -hmm. have clips of me talking to him when I was 19 years old what? and wow. him critiquing me when he would send me these scripts to me in Dayton, Ohio. And this started really was the beginning of me realizing that I could make a living doing voiceovers. Uh, for our listeners, uh, behind you are what appear to be a bunch of cells from The Simpsons. <laughs> One of my questions was, what kind of materials do you keep from the show? So it looks like you have cells. Are yeah. you a collector of Simpsons memorabilia as well? I have like cookie jars. There's a, I didn't get the Bart bread. I didn't get the talking toothbrush. Um, but I have, I have this one doll that is really a treasure of mine. It got misplaced once and disappeared for quite some while, but then it was found again and shoes. I kept the shoes that I, I wore on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. Maybe Whoa. someday that should go in an archive and in, into an archival space. Oh, wow. I've got every single script that we oh, ever did, what? that wow. we ever recorded. It's like, I thought, did, did you have to add an addition to your house? Well, I kind of re reworked a room, but um, yeah. yeah, that's that's fun. Wow. Uh, in addition to Bart, you also do voices like Ralph Wiggum, Nelson Muntz, Rod and Todd Flanders, Kearney, and Maggie, which I that's the one yeah. I didn't know about. How do you do Maggie Simpson? Well, first I have to correct. I, you, it, it is yeah. kind of Rod and Todd. It's changed mm -hmm. over the years. I think I'm oh, more okay. Toddish than Roddish. Okay. And Maggie... <laughs> Um, I've Maggie. always considered myself a little more rottish than Todd, but you know, this, this isn't a BuzzFeed quiz. <laughs> Maggie doesn't really talk on the show, but somebody has to, you know, 
do that. Oh my God. Do that kind do you of do stuff. The, do you do the pacifier sucking noise? I do it for the records, but that's a technical sound. I think Matt Groening, uh, I think he did the very first um, sound wow. of that, but I just do that. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I have a 10-month-old in the room behind this wall behind me, oh. and he's obsessed with his little passy, and so we sometimes make try to make fun of the Maggie sound, and we, we've never been able to crack it. We're like, how did they make that sound? Like, I don't get it. We're like, no, that's not it. That's not it. It's like. Flip your lower lip. That's how you do it. You flick it with your tongue. Last thing I want to ask you about, not related to The Simpsons, uh, one of the things that I know you're interested in that we will not be talking about as one of your topics, but I saw a video where uh, you have a chicken coop and uh, several pets there. Tell us about the chickens you have. How many do you have? What are their names? How'd you get into that? Well, I used to have eight girls. Mm -hmm. They're all female, obviously, because they're the hens. But um, Mm -hmm. Patty, Maxine, Laverne, Shirley, Thelma, Louise, Betty, and Wilma. There's nothing quite like going out and collecting the eggs and going directly into the kitchen and cracking Whoa. that egg and frying it right up. And they're golden. They're they're just they're creamy and really rich in protein and super delicious. Do they wake you up in the morning? That's the thing about chickens, yeah. right? They're loud. People don't know this about roosters. Roosters cock-a-doodle-doodly-doo whenever they want. It's just not in the middle of the night. Chickens actually... No, they don't wake me up. They're fun. I go out. They'll follow me as soon as I go out there. They come and greet me, and I throw Aww. them these like little worms, and everybody's happy. And they're not disturbed at all that you eat their potential children for breakfast. <laughs> 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 no, they have to earn their keep, man. My son was learning how to iron when he was five years old. Believe okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly have earned your spot being here. We are honored and pleased to have Miss Nancy Cartwright. Thank you so much. Helen, against whom will Nancy be competing? He is an Emmy and Peabody winning writer and producer who is executive producer and showrunner of The Simpsons. <laughs> it's Al Jean. Hello, Al Jean. <laughs> Hi, glad to be here. Great to have you. Jay Keith, I'm sensing a theme. Yes, there was a little bit of a theme. This was kind of accidental. We, we knew we had Nancy. We were looking for a male competitor. We happened to write to somebody at Fox saying, anyone uh, you might want to put on the show? And they said, how about Al Jean? We said, how about yes? But I specifically said no Simpsons people. I don't understand. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Yes, and, and Nancy, by the way, this is uh, our surreptitious way of getting your performance review uh, recorded for, for all to hear. Oh, wow. I'm sure you're doing fine. <laughs> Playing against your boss is kind of a dicey situation, right? Very unusual to get a performance review at 33 seasons. Yeah, that's been- <laughs> I think we have a mutual admiration society between the two yes. of us. I, I adore Al. He's amazing at what he does. No, I feel just the same. Nancy's a genius, does all these amazing voices and channels, these incredible characters that have become so popular. It's it's amazing. I mean, our cast is all great. And just when you see them do it, it's it's like a special effect. <laughs> well, in addition to being executive producer or writer for The Simpsons for 33 years, showrunner for 22 seasons, you also worked on The Critic, It's Gary Shandling Show, and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which we want to ask you about a little bit later. I saw an interview where you said that when you first were offered The Simpsons gig, your agents didn't think that you should take it. No, it was just two days a week, and our friends turned it down. But uh, we said, gee, you're working with Jim Brooks and Matt Groening and Sam Simon, you know, who are all just people I really admired in different ways as writers. So we said, what's the worst that can happen? We'll be there for 40 years. And <laughs> 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 
And almost. Um, you left, of course, to work on The Critic, which lasted a few years. You came back a few years later. Had The Simpsons changed much since you had left, or was it just like riding a bike, getting back into it? To be honest, it's always been the same strategy for writing the show. You're just trying to think of stories with an emotion that you know involve a family. Mm-hmm. The technology has changed. Mm-hmm. We don't have hand-painted cells anymore. It's all done digitally. But in terms of what we do, the only difference is we've done 700 shows, so it's harder to think of a new story now. <laughs> yeah. Do you find yourself pitching shows and then having someone say, no, we already did that one? I'm the one who says that. You're the one, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're the archivist. <laughs> are you, are you like an, ex, you have an encyclopedic memory of all the, the Simpsons, like just everything that's happened on The Simpsons? I do. There's two showrunners, me and Matt Selman. And between us, we mostly remember everything. There's no computer program. It's just us saying, wow. no, no, no. That alone is a feat. I need to take whatever Ginkgo Biloba stuff you're taking because <laughs> I can't remember stuff I wrote last night. That, I, nothing else. Just remember Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that technology in terms of the animation has changed over the years. Does that change how you write or what you might write for? You would think that it would be easier, but it's not. Um, you know, we preceded Google. So, you know, you used to have to do research by going to a library. What? We almost preceded yeah. word processing. I'm not what? kidding. Yeah. So, you know, we almost preceded um, written word, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, but it's still the same thing, you know, and yeah. it's still, we do our, our recordings over Zoom now, which is different, but oh, wow. still you're trying to get a laugh and it's mm-hmm. just. You know, it's basically the same process. One of the other changes that happened kind of behind the scenes is that Disney, which is a company you guys used to make fun of a lot, bought Fox, <laughs> actually owns The Simpsons. Has that changed anything in terms of how the show works or, or what you write about? Do you, are you any any less uh, eager to make fun of them or more eager now? Honestly, they bought us and said, we want you to be yourselves. Okay. We want you to do the same things that you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has really been very little change, uh, except we're really glad that we're on Disney+. Plus which has 130 million subscribers. So it's just been, you know, everything's streaming now. So I'm really glad we landed on that streaming platform. You've done some sort of crossover work with the Disney Marvel Universe and with uh, The Simpsons? We did. We want because it's um, tile envy. There are five tiles on Disney Plus, and it's like you know Marvel, uh, Pixar, you know Net Geo, and we're not one of them. So Aww. we want to cross over with all of them. We did a Star Wars short, and then we did a short with uh, Tom Hiddleston as Loki, which was fantastic. Yeah, he was in London recording, and it was the day that they like had an all clear on the pandemic, and everybody was partying, but he was doing The Simpsons, <laughs> and he couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. Have you thought about how the show might come to an end? I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but uh, can't go on forever, of course. I've been asked that question for 20 years. So my answer is, if I did a last episode, mine would be that the last episode um, ends at the beginning of the first episode where they're going to the Christmas pageant you see in the Christmas show. Right. And um, I actually happen to have... A draft of that first script right here. Oh, wow. Oh, my notes. Al, Al is showing us a framed photo of the, or excuse me, I guess a framed piece of paper. The first from draft. That, yeah, the first phrase. script. Wow. So I would make the whole show a continuous loop with no beginning or end because animation doesn't really change. Everything's right. Bart's still 10. Everything, yep. you know, never, nothing. Homer falls down a cliff and he's fine. Last thing I want to ask you about, you worked not for a very long time, though, on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I know you worked on a lot of his comedy pieces. Are there any in particular that you remember? Because I, I love revisiting those old Carson bits. I worked on the Karnak, the Magnificence. And uh, one thing that would, uh, people don't know is that when we did them, Johnny was like, these are too easy. The writers are getting a day off. <laughs> he was like, really cranky. Because you're pretty and much writing a pun and then sort of reverse engineering how do you get to the pun? 
Exactly. Yeah. And here's one that we wrote, um, I already wrote it, right, Grace and I, um, St. Elsewhere, what's the message on Mother Teresa's answering machine? And uh, Johnny didn't do it. <laughs> so yeah. we sold it to Alf when they did it tonight. Show. They did it on Alf. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, it's uh, so wonderful to have you. What a treat, Mr. Al Jean. All right, Nancy and Al, we asked each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Nancy, you told us you know a lot about the Fellini movie La Strada, reverse painting technique, and punctuation and grammar. Whereas, Al, you said you know a lot about Emmy-winning sitcoms since 1970, Detroit Tigers baseball statistics, and American presidents. Later on, we're going to find out a little bit more about each of those with some in-depth trivia questions on one of those topics. But first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect answer, the other person has a chance to steal. Your topic today, the family jewels. First up is Nancy with family. Nancy, while they both are members of your family, what's the difference between a second cousin and a first cousin once removed? A second cousin and a first cousin once removed. (laughs) Okay. Nancy gasping in horror. Well, the first cousin once removed is probably a cousin to a cousin. A cousin to a cousin. Yeah. And the other one. Second cousins. The second cousin Mm -hmm. is the son or daughter of the cousin. The son or daughter of the cousin. (laughs) All right. We've got Nancy's answer. We don't know yet if she's entirely correct. Al, if you don't think she's got it just right, you can steal. What do you think? I would guess the second cousin is the cousin of the cousin. Okay. And the uh, first cousin, once removed, is um, where there's like a stepfather or mother situation. A stepfather or mother stepmother situation. Uh, all right. Well, this segment needs to be removed. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. The short version of first cousin, once removed, is either your parent's first cousin or your first cousin's child. Because first cousins have the same grandparents, they are the same generation. The removed part comes in when cousins are not the same generation. The longer version is this, and it is longer, so strap in, folks. Here we go. If one of your parents has a sibling, that sibling is your uncle or aunt. If that uncle or aunt has a child, that child is your first cousin. Then if that first cousin has a child, That child is your first cousin once removed, and you are that child's first cousin once removed. Because, like I said in the short version, (laughs) a first cousin once removed is either your parent's first cousin or your first cousin's child. I'm out of breath, Jake. Wow. (laughs) It couldn't be simpler. Uh, (laughs) That's right. Uh, By the way, I recently attended the wedding of my first cousin, Jamie. So if he and his wife, Angie, have a baby, that baby will be my first cousin once removed. And if I have a baby, those babies will be second cousins and also adorable. Uh, By the way, in lieu of a wedding present, I've decided to mention Jamie and Angie on the podcast. Mazel tov. <laughs> Helen, how did our guest do? Okay. I mean, I, I don't know, Jay Keith, really. I, I don't really quite have a grasp on this answer. I think it may be, to date, our most convoluted answer. But I'm going to give a half point to each of you because you said cousin of a cousin, and I think I said that at one point. I think so as well. All right. Very generous, and thank God we never have to discuss this again. All right. Up next in Family Jewels, it's Al with Jules. Al, your question comes from a listener. Who is it, Helen? I will let them tell you themselves because we have a listener recording. Listeners, if you'd like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to gofactorpod.com and click on Get Involved. Okay, play it. 
Hi, Jay Keith, Helen, and guests. This is Matt Flater from Lincoln, Nebraska. My question for what's the difference is, while they both are valuable items to a family, what's the difference between a gem and a jewel? Love the show. Thanks. So articulate. Yeah, very articulate. Uh, all right, Al, you heard Matt. What is the difference between a gem and a jewel? My guess would be a gem is found naturally and a jewel is after it's been cut. All right. <laughs> I, I was I was so ready for a much longer answer given our last topic. So but, uh, succinct. Yes, but very succinct. <laughs> All right, we've got Al's answer. We don't know yet if he's entirely correct. Nancy, what do you think? I think a gem is an idea that you have that is like out of the box and it's so perfect for what it is that, you, that you're looking for. And I think a jewel mm-hmm. is an amazing artist that sings these songs that breaks our heart and <laughs> she's incredible. She's got blonde hair and she's, she's amazing and that's our jewel. All right. Well, um, <laughs> this segment is losing its luster, and I think Jewel agree. <laughs> I think hey. Jewel agree. Hey. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. A gem or a gemstone is a piece of precious or semi-precious crystalline mineral or stone. Once it starts being cut, polished, and refined, it's called either a gem or or a jewel because a jewel is a polished and refined gemstone that's ready to be placed in a piece of jewelry or other valuable item. But a jewel can also be any piece of jewelry, whether it contains a stone or not. This is more of how jewelers and gemologists think of the difference. That's right. And in ways that affect me more personally, Jewel is a supermarket in Chicago where I grew up, and Jen is the lead singer of the holograms. Helen, how did our guest do? (laughs) I think Al got both parts of that correct. I think so as well. Two points for Al. Very nice. (laughs) Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Nancy Cartwright has half a point, and Al Jean has two and a half points. Those scores are bound to change as we move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself. Oh, Helen, what's it time to talk about? I have a feeling it's cereal, Jakey. It is cereal. Because <laughs> you only get this excited when we're talking about <laughs> Magic Spoon. Yay, it is Magic Spoon. Oh, Magic Spoon is so good. It's such a wonderful breakfast cereal. And, you know, it's got some nutritional stuff that people seem to enjoy also. Because eating a high-protein breakfast, it can cause fewer cravings throughout your day and more energy to tide you over until lunch. But how do you get that energy and what kind of nutritional stuff do you have in Magic Spoon, Helen? Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, 140 calories, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. But Helen, I understand there was breaking news about that nutritional information. (gasps) Because honey nut flavor has one gram of sugar. Oh, my God. Mon Dieu. Oh, the pyramids are falling. Uh, The honey nut flavor has one gram of sugar. Ah! But guess what that means? Honey Nut flavor is back. Honey Nut was a temporary flavor, and Magic Spoon listened to its eaters so much, they heard how delicious that people found it, and they brought it back permanently. Yay, Magic Spoon! Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. And you can build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, cookies and cream, maple waffle, blueberry cinnamon, plus the newly reformulated Honey Nut flavor that will now be added to Magic Spoon's permanent collection. Permanent. That means forever. 
It's the perfect midnight snack in addition to being a wonderful breakfast food. Helen, how do they get Magic Spoon? Go to magicspoon.com slash gofact to grab a custom bundle of cereal and be sure to use our promo code gofact at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash gofact and use the code gofact to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely, and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about this... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Nancy Cartwright and Al Jean. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, Nancy, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about Fellini's movie La Strada, reverse painting technique, and punctuation and grammar. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us why you chose Fellini's movie La Strada for your topic. Way back before I was on The Simpsons, this was in the mid-80s, I was studying acting, and my acting teacher had me take a look at La Strada. And then I thought, my gosh, what am I going to do with this? And I thought, oh, I want to I wanna try to develop this into a play. I will I'll meet Fellini. I'll go to Italy. I'll meet Fellini and um, get the rights to do it. And that's kind of what I did. I went off and did an adventure. I ate, drank. I fell in love. But when I came back, I realized that my story was better. And so I developed, <laughs> instead of doing a recreation of La Strada, I just called it In Search of Fellini, and it's about my journey. So 10 years passed, and I did it as a one-woman show, and then 20 more years after that, I produced it as a as a film. And we Whoa. shot Yeah, we shot you it. You eat, pray, loved your own <laughs> Fellini adventure? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Did, wow. did you get to meet Fellini, by the way? You're going to have to rent that movie to find oh. out. <laughs> Teaser. I, right. I tell you, it, I wrote his office. I heard back from his office and they're like, no, don't come. Don't visit. He's only going to be here for one week and between Christmas and New Year's. And I'm like, bam, I am on that airplane. Oh, so. my God. Well, it sounded like you were studying drama, but you were minoring in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy, you also said you know a lot about reverse painting technique. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because this developed way back in the Byzantine era. and But it's the technique that was used in original animation. They would paint on one side of an acetate celluloid was just as a piece of film, basically, and then flip it over and paint it in reverse order. In other words, you would do the pupil of the eye first and then the white of the eye second, and then the back of the face would be third. So, and I would take quarter inch acetate or acrylic plastic and do the same thing. I would do it from a, a sketch that I did or use a photograph as a reference and paint it on the back. I'm getting the sense, Nancy, that you're never a casual hobbyist. Like, you take a topic and you go hard. 
You kind of have to really see it to believe it. It's it's very impressionistic, actually, when you look at it from the front. And then you flip it over and it becomes a more clear image. That's really neat. Yeah. All right. And then lastly, Nancy, you said you know a lot about punctuation and grammar. This is just something that I carried on from, you know, from grade school, middle school, high school. I was really good and I loved English and literature. And I just noticed, I mean, now it's like things are a bit falling apart. I don't even think kids are learning how to write in cursive writing anymore. And I kind of got interested in it. So looking it up and understanding when to use a semicolon, what about that Oxford comma? What about yeah. that damn Oxford comma? Let's talk about that. That's redundant, people. You know? <laughs> I think you are cleaving our audience into different populations with that, but we're not afraid to take on the tough issues here. Nancy, so to summarize, you said you know a lot about Fellini's movie La Strada, reverse painting technique, and punctuation and grammar. Today you're going to quiz you about Reverse painting technique. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, okay. It's really cool. You you actually post on social media some of the pieces that you do. It's wonderful to watch these sort of time-lapse videos. And in addition to, you know, what people would think is possible in that form, you know, landscapes and whatnot, you actually do portraits of people. Tell us about some of yeah. the portraits that you've done. Yeah, I have a collection called Freedom Fighters. And um, I've just taken individuals whose lives started out pretty rough and they've had to overcome many obstacles People mm-hmm. like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, um, Helen Keller, uh, Harriet Tubman. I just put it out there as a challenge, kind of as an inspiration for those who came before us that mm-hmm. led the way in terms of overcoming obstacles. Generally, how long do these paintings take? It depends on the size of the painting. Some of my paintings are like one foot by one foot, mm-hmm. and some are as big as six feet by by three and a half feet they're quite unwieldy and they take yeah they take quite a bit longer and it's really hard to like pull it out and check the back to see if it's working or if i've crossed over too many lines or it's a, it can get a little bit complicated, and that takes quite a long time to do. It's amazing. I really suggest our listeners check out some of these videos because you, you look at the back of it and you think, oh, that's a really neat impressionistic painting. I wonder what it is. And then you turn it over, and the precision is, is, is just incredible. I, I really hope people will check that out. All right. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery in the subject with our expert-level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two with these five questions. Now, Al, do listen closely because if Nancy answers incorrectly, you can steal. Al, by the way, how much do you know about reverse painting technique? <laughs> You're about to find out. We are, okay. <laughs> Let's see if she lets you in. Here's question number one. Nancy, according to WikiHow, which I consult for all of my artistic endeavors, after cleaning the glass on which you plan to paint, you should smooth out the edges of the glass using what abrasive material more often associated with woodworking? Probably sandpaper. Helen? That is correct. (laughs) That is correct for the point. Fun fact, an employee of 3M invented a sandpaper to replace razors for shaving. It was unsuccessful because men didn't know when to stop and often sanded off a layer of skin with their whiskers. Ouch. Yep. Men, not the brightest bulb in the shed. Nancy, you're on the board. Here's question number two. I have a feeling you might know this one. In addition to glass, what transparent thermoplastic is also commonly used as a surface for reverse painting? Yeah, acrylic. Helen? That is correct. (laughs) That is correct. Acrylic or plexiglass or lucite or perspex, polycryl, gavrielli, vitroflex, limacryl, arcas, perclax, plazcryl, acrylex. (laughs) (laughs) All would have been acceptable. All of those. Oh, my God. Oral glass and optics, Jake. Yes, yes. 
All of those are trade names for uh, acrylic sheets. Uh, bonus fun fact, artist Jim Nutt used plexiglass for several of his notable reverse paintings, which were inspired by the reverse painting seen on pinball machines. So a lot of people are probably familiar with reverse paintings, even if you don't realize it. All right, you're two for two, Nancy. Here's question number three. Unless you were buying paints that are manufactured specifically for glass painting, you may want to mix a gluey additive in to help the pigment adhere to the smooth glass. This substance is also used to prepare and tighten a canvas if you are more of a conventional painter. What is this sticky substance called? I'll take a hint. All right, Helen, how about that first hint? Hmm, it sounds like it might come in small, medium, large, or extra large. Huh? <laughs> and forgetting painting, what do what do things that when you when you refer to things as small, medium, large, or extra large, what are you talking about? You're talking about those are different ways of describing a size. Helen, that is correct. That is correct. Yeah. A size or sizing. <laughs> yes, I'm guessing that I'm guessing from your huge awesome. shrug that that is something that you are not accustomed to using in your painting. No, <laughs> no. Okay, well, fun fact: some sizings, especially in the past, were made using animal products, including sheep, cows, and bladders of fish. Oh, How wow. they found out that fish bladders could help with art, I will never know. Incredible. <laughs> you don't want to know. Yeah. We don't want to know. All right, Nancy, you're three for three. You have one more hint available. Here's question number four. Now, if you don't use proper techniques like cleaning and sanding properly, using proper paints or sizing, or allowing air bubbles to get in, the paint in your reverse painting can flake and break off. What is the term for this separation of paint from the glass? Oh, Wow. I'm sure it's never happened to you because, of course, you prepare and store all of your paintings correctly. No, I'm familiar with it, though, because okay. it's like a, it's it's not porous. So it sits on top mm-hmm. and it will crack and heat does that to it. I'm right. not sure. that I don't know what it's called, though. So help me out, Helen. Helen, how about that second hint? It sounds like you're undoing the process of sealing your student ID between two layers of plastic. Sounds like you're undoing. Some people do it with their um, vaccine cards. Mm-hmm. They go to like a print shop and they go, mm-hmm. I need this. Oh, yeah. What's that called? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get this. Mm. Yeah. Laminated. So so again, if, it's, if you're undoing it. Okay. So say it again, please. Yeah. Delaminating. Yes. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. Yes. Delamination. <laughs> Very nice use of the hint. Fun fact. Delamination can also occur if you do everything right, but you don't store your reverse painting properly, allowing moisture, dust, or other contaminants to get in between the back and the glass. All right, Nancy, you're four for four, but you have no more hints available. Let's see how you do on this question number five. One of the most famous painters to use the reverse painting technique is Vasily Kandinsky, who, according to an article in Heritage Science, created more than 70 reverse paintings on glass. Now, Kandinsky created most of his reverse glass paintings on flat panels, but 10 paintings on structured glass of two different types. One was a glass three to four millimeters thick that shows a corrugated surface, and the other is a thinner glass that reveals a hammered surface structure. Name either of the names for these types of glass. So it's the one that's like like that or like that. Exactly. One sort of corrugated and one is sort of a hammered. I'm going to call it one of them is beveled. Helen, is it beveled? It is not beveled. No, very reasonable guess, though. But Al Jean with a chance to steal. Um... (laughs) 
<laughs> delamination. No, delamination. No. <laughs> Helen, is it delamination glass? It's not delamination. No, but I love that you would think that we would do two answers in a row. I would not put that past us. Uh, no, this was tricky. We were looking for ornamental glass, which is that thicker one. The other is called cathedral glass. Something that you may have seen before, cathedral glass. Uh, No point there for either of you. Fun fact, Picasso was another famous painter who dabbled in reverse painting. He created a series of paintings on glass for a 1949 documentary where the camera was pointed right at him and through the glass on which he was painting. Very cool video to check out. Wow. All right, Nancy, you still did quite well in that round, but now here's your expert level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. According to a 2017 article by Dr. Carly Wurzelbacher in the Journal of Glass Studies, you are not the only American woman who enjoys reverse painting. In fact, according to Dr. Wurzelbacher, many middle-class American women of the late 19th century took up the art form, but not always with the name reverse painting, especially when they added a certain metal material to the backs of their glass to give their paintings depth and shimmer. So, for up to three points, what shiny metal material usually associated with Christmas time was used for these reverse paintings? What color typically was used to paint the background of these reverse paintings? And, according to Dr. Wurzelbacher, what is one of the three names used to describe painting with this technique since it wasn't called reverse painting? Tinsel. Okay. The color that was usually used, that was usually painted for the background? Yeah. I'm going to say green. Green. All right. And what was the third one? The third one was, it was not called reverse painting. What is one of the three other names that was used to describe the technique when using that metallic substance? Metal. Metal. All right. Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is the curator of the Heckscher Museum of Art and the author of several papers and articles about reverse painting, including one in the Journal of Glass Studies. It's Dr. Carly Wurzelbacher. Yeah. Wow. Hello, Dr. Carly Wurzelbacher. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure. Yes, I'm so impressed, Nancy. Wow. I thought I was the only one that knew this. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> well, I love reading your work in the Journal of Glass Studies, and uh, we'll talk about that article in a moment. You actually have something else in common with Nancy besides your love of reverse painting. You both are Ohioans. Yes. Am I saying that right? Uh, Ohioan. Ohioans. I went to Ohio State. I went to the other Ohio University called Ohio University. Well, Dr. Wurzelbacher, tell us first uh, in general about the Heckscher Museum. It's something I hadn't heard of until we had researched this topic, but it sounds really neat. Sure. Uh, The Heckscher Museum is on Long Island in Huntington, New York, and we have a remarkable collection of European and American art spanning the 1500s to the present. Mm -hmm. And we also own uh, the home, the historic artist home in studio of Arthur Dove and Helen Tor, American modernists, well, Dove painted on glass a few times. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that there's actually a rich history of art making on Long Island. Oh my gosh, yes. Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol was on Long Island. I've told a lot of of, uh, inappropriate jokes on Long Island. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Helen also made her art on Long Island as well. So the Heckscher Museum has a really interesting program of youth ambassadors. Tell us what they do. They prepare and they give tours about Mm -hmm. the paintings. They're in grade school and they're so polished and they're so practiced. I think they're coming for my job. (laughs) (laughs) Where does your interest in reverse paintings come from? Because you ended up doing a doctoral thesis on it. Yes. So it started in Ohio, actually. I was working 
as an intern and then as an administrative coordinator, so very entry level at the Columbus Museum of Art in Ohio, still one of my favorite museums. They in the collection had two reverse paintings on glass by the American artist Rockwell Kent. They really struck me as being beautiful and unique. At the same time, it was the first museum I had ever worked at. So I didn't realize that actually reverse painting on glass can be rare in museum mm. collections. So as I went on in my career, I was not running across glass paintings every day. So then when I did, it really stuck with me. And I kind of added up all those instances and realized that there was actually a, a rich topic there. Well, your thesis is called Working Backwards, American Modernism and Reverse Painting on Glass. Who were some of the other artists that you focused on besides the ones that you mentioned? So I had chapters on Marsden Hartley, Joseph Stella, and the artist that I was least familiar with before I started the project. Uh, her name is Rebecca Salisbury James. Was there any surprising findings that you had in your research on these artists? A few hundred pages worth. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess you don't write a thesis on what people already knew. You, you'd write on what you found out. All right. All right. Fair enough. Um, what I was surprised to, to find as I was reading some of the biographies of these artists is how many of them were self-taught. Um, is that because reverse glass painting is something that's just not taught on an academic level or just it, it has to, they have to discover it yourself? Yeah, I think in some ways, I mean, I don't know, Nancy, would you describe yourself as self-taught? Yeah, I was just curious about it. And you learn from your mistakes and they're expensive because it's very, mm. right, doctor, it's not, it's not a friendly medium at all. <laughs> yes, you cannot make corrections. You know, right. you can't go back in next week and decide, oh, I just want to fix that up. And then yeah. if your glass breaks, mm. you're really out of luck. But some of the, you know, the answer that um, the expert question that Nancy was asked, mm -hmm. some people learned to paint on glass from magazines. So you could, in the 19th century, order a kit and it would come with stencils or a design that one could trace. Mm -hmm. So there were different ways to get into reverse painting. But then to make it your own going off of those the same techniques. Exactly. Interesting. I'm curious, have you tried it yourself? More putting colors next to each other, not yeah. actually painting layers in reverse order. But Got I it. have taken apart some glass paintings to see both the front and the back. And especially if there's a layer of shiny metallic material, wanting to see how that worked yeah. and fit together. Well, let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Nancy. First, we wanted to know what shiny metal material usually associated with Christmas time was used in those reverse paintings of the late 19th century. Helen, what did Nancy say? Nancy said tinsel. And Dr. Wurzelbacher? Correct. That is correct for the point. Very good. <laughs> it's interesting. They didn't use tinsel necessarily just as the kind we think of as hanging from a Christmas tree. Tell us about some of the other ways that people got this material. You could repurpose it from... Mm -hmm a candy wrapper or tobacco wrapper, a cigar wrapper. Mm -hmm. um, some of those actually would be stamped with the maker or the address of the cigar. So now we can date glass paintings based on. Oh, wow. And then later people used uh, just sheets of aluminum foil. Very hmm. cool. All right, point there for Nancy. Next, we wanted to know what color typically was used to paint the background of those reverse paintings. Helen, what did Nancy say? Nancy said green. And Dr. Wurzelbacher? And it's not correct. Oh. It is my favorite color, but the answer is black. Ah, oh, black. And what was the reasoning for that? Was it so that the metal would show up more vividly? Yes, the colors and the metal against the dark background. 
especially mm-hmm. if you're in gaslight or candlelight, you know, very right. oh, shimmery. Of course. Right, right, right. All right, no point there. I'm sorry. And finally, we wanted to know, according to some person named Dr. Wurzelbacher, yeah. what is one of the three names used to describe painting with that technique since it wasn't called reverse painting? Helen, what did Nancy say? Nancy said metal painting. And Dr. Wurzelbacher? At the time, in the 19th century, some mm-hmm. phrases were tinsel painting, mm-hmm. crystal painting, mm-hmm. pearl painting, mm-hmm. or oriental painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, oriental, of course being a dated term that we would not use today. But not metal, I'm sorry, no point there. Not the painting of my people. Yes, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, Nancy, before we let Dr. Wurzelbacher go, is there anything you'd like to ask or say to our expert? Wow, such a pleasure having you as a part of this as an expert. It's an honor to meet you, and I have to come visit visit one of the museums that you mentioned. That would be great. I'm inspired even more now. Thank you so much. Dr. Wurzelbacher, if people want to find out more about you or your work or the Heckscher Museum, where can they do that? The best place would be the internet, um, heckscher.org. Heckscher.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us and teaching us more about reverse glass painting. It's Dr. Carly Wurzelbacher. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. All right, Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Nancy Cartwright has four and a half points and Al Jean has two and a half points with a round of questions for Al coming up. That's right. We're going to talk with Al about a topic he knows about. Plus, later, Nancy and Al will go head to head in our Fast Facts round, all to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. Helen, we have a brand new sponsor. (gasps) Who is it? It's Ritual. I have to tell you, Helen, a few months ago, I received a box at my door and I opened it and there was this bottle... And I was like, what is this? I've never heard of this. And then it says Ritual Essential for Men Multivitamin Dietary Supplement with Vegan Capsules. And I was like, well, what? this looks amazing. And it turns out Ritual is sending us this so that I could try it and tell you how great Ritual is and how happy we are to have them as a sponsor of the show. Ritual has clean, vegan-friendly multivitamins formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms that your body can actually use. Each of these capsules has vitamin A. A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin B12, zinc, vitamin K2. I didn't even know vitamins went that high. <laughs> Magnesium, all sorts of great things specially formulated for whatever your demographic is. And, Helen, I wish you could smell it through this microphone because it smells great. It smells really? like fresh mint. Yeah. What? Vitamins don't usually smell that good. No, it's a nice little pick-me-up in the morning, which is when I take my daily Ritual vitamin. Wow. Tell them about more about the uh, nutritional stuff in here. Ritual's delayed-release cap. Capsule design delivers high-quality nutrients, including vitamin D3, in just two daily pills. They're now available for women, men, and teens. Ritual multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support different life stages. Your multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. I'm so glad that I got these Ritual multivitamins. They're so easy to take. They go down nice and easy. They smell great. So much wonderful natural stuff in here. How do they get it, Helen? Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit Ritual.com slash GoFact to start your ritual today. That's Ritual.com slash GoFact. Thank Thank you, you, Ritual. Did your neighbor back into your car? Bring that case to Judge Judy. Think the mailman might be the real father? Give that one to Judge Mathis. But... 
Does your mom want you to flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World when she passes away? Now that's my jurisdiction. Welcome to the court of Judge John Hodgman, where the people are real, the disputes are real, and the stakes are often unusual. If I got arrested for dumping your ashes in the Jungle Cruise, it would be an honor. I don't want to be part of somebody getting a super yacht. I don't know at what point you want to go into this, but we've had a worm bin before. Available free right now at MaximumFun.org. Judge John Hodgman, the court of last resort when your wife won't stop pretending to be a cat and knocking the clean laundry over. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Nancy Cartwright and Al Jean. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, Al, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about Emmy-winning sitcoms since 1970, Detroit Tigers statistics, and American presidents. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us why Emmy-winning sitcoms since 1970 mean so much to you. The Simpsons has won 35 Emmys. Uh, we're two behind Frasier for most by a comedy, and uh, we're coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, humble brag. You can run, but you can't hide, Frasier. <laughs> So tell us about what it is about that era since 1970. You don't like the shows from the 60s and before? My boss, Jim Brooks, started the Mary Tyler Moore show in that year, and it's the same year as All in the Family, which really were the groundbreaking shows, mm-hmm. uh, sitcoms. Uh, my knowledge really would come from that point on. All right. You also said you know a lot about Detroit Tigers baseball statistics. I grew up in Detroit. Uh, humble break. <laughs> 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 The first baseball game I went to was in 1968 with my dad when uh, the Tigers won the World Series that year. Um, they they uh, started 35 and five in 1984. I was at that 40th game, so uh, it, yep, I was in Anaheim. So I said, "Hey, I might as well go. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be fun." And I've been a fan my whole life. That's wow. so cool. And was it wow. was it about the statistics especially that appeals to you? Well, I was a math major, so, uh, you know, I figured if I'm picking a category, why not? Okay, great. Wait, you were a math major? <laughs> yes, yeah, I was. And you ended up doing the job you're doing? Well, there's it actually quite a, few, quite a few wasted science degrees. No, no, uh, there's a math professor on staff, Jeff Westbrook, who is mm-hmm. at Yale. There are the writers who've had PhDs, like David Cohen mm-hmm. and Ken Keeler. It's a lot more fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's more fun. But there have been plenty of articles written about how mathematics shows up on The Simpsons. Uh, and, and, I'm and a book even, Yeah, yes. and a book even. Yeah, yeah. I think we actually wow. talked about that when we talk, when we did this. We did an entire segment on the number pi, and uh, we spent a good deal of time talking about the Simpsons because uh, there have been references uh, to that on that show as well. And finally, Al, you said you know a lot about American presidents. For whatever reason, the books I tend to read are presidential biographies. So mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty knowledgeable. If I had to do it over again, I would be a history major because yeah. it would have been easier than a math major. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see if that's the category. Is there less to know about history than about math? It's that you can use the same knowledge for every course. Ah, like okay. <laughs> if you just take American history every time. Yeah. Like with math, there's like algebra, there's geometry. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like it's, it's literally infinite. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So to summarize, Al, you said you know a lot about Emmy-winning sitcoms since 1970, Detroit Tigers statistics, and American presidents. Today, we're going to quiz you about Detroit Tigers statistics. Yay. Yay, indeed. <laughs> you mentioned that you started in the 60s and that you were at that game in the 80s. Do you have a favorite era? Well, when they win is better. Um, by the way, <laughs> Spoken like a I true fan. Right here. Oh, look at that. The big gothic D <laughs> showing that hat. Great. What about a favorite player? 
Uh, I have a big fan of Alan Trammell, who just got in the Hall of Fame. And Al Kaline, of course, because they sure. both were Al's. Oh, oh, I hadn't made that connection. Yeah. I'm waiting for a Jay Keith to make the Hall of Fame, but uh, it might be a while. And do you have a favorite statistic of the Tigers? What always uh, puzzled me as a kid was Ty Cobb used to have the batting average record at 367. Mm-hmm. And then in about 1975, they said, actually, it's 366. Mm-hmm. It's like, what did he do in 1975 when he was dead? <laughs> 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 He pissed somebody yeah. off. <laughs> no, no, after his <laughs> But of course, that's as people discover more accurate box scores and, yes. and newspaper printing and all that. Interesting. All right. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of an expert in your topic. But before that, to give you a chance to show off, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed a total of two hints in these five questions. Now, Nancy, do listen closely because you can steal if Al gets any of them wrong. Nancy, by the way, how much do you know about Detroit Tigers statistics? Well, I know where Detroit is. I know what a Tiger okay. is. <laughs> it's right. It's right above Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, Nancy. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see if Al is feeling neighborly, and we'll let you into his uh, category. Al, here's question number one: No living person played more games with the Tigers or had as many runs, walks, hits, and doubles for the Tigers as Lou Whitaker. As if this weren't enough, he also inspired the name of what character on The Simpsons? Lou, the cop. <laughs> That's a pretty easy one. For well, we, it, we are because I named easy. the character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like even they got delamination, but then they get me that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're very happy to have you here. Yes, uh, Lou the cop. Helen, is that correct? It is correct, of course. Very good. Uh, fun fact: You, Al Jean, told the world this fun fact about Lou Whitaker in a tweet in 2018. Yeah, because I'm campaigning for him to get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He is, with the exception of Clemens and Bonds, which is another story, yeah. he is the most valuable player not in the Hall of Fame who's still alive. Well, so uh, next time he comes up, that's my that's my pitch. That's great. Here's question number two. While playing for the Tigers, Miguel Cabrera finished the 2012 season with a 330 batting average, 44 home runs, and 139 RBI, leading the league in all three categories and earning him what regal distinction? Triple crown. Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Fun fact, Ty Cobb also won the batting triple crown with the Tigers in 1909, leading the league in home runs with nine. They have a poster of the two of them. Yeah. The Tigers triple crown winners. Oh, that's great. (laughs) I saw it at the stadium. All right, here's question number three. There's also a pitching triple crown when a pitcher leads the league in wins, ERA, and strikeouts. This was accomplished by Tigers pitcher Justin Verlander in 2011 and by what Tigers pitcher in 1945, who is the same Tigers pitcher to lead the franchise in total pitcher war wins above replacement. Al Newhauser. Helen? Wow, that is correct. That is correct for the point. You did not need the hint, but Helen, I know you practiced. What would that hint have been? His last name sounds like someone who deals with freshly built homes. <laughs> Thank you. New Thank you. Hauser. Thank freshly you built much. homes. Thank New Hauser. It's a Karnak. All right. Yeah, that was a Karnak. How about that? We put got to got to put that in the uh, mayonnaise jar under the porch. Fun fact: Justin Verlander won the Cy Young Award and MVP when he won the pitching triple crown in 2011. How New Hauser won MVP but did not win the Cy Young in 1945 because the award did not exist until 1956. All right, you are three for three. You have your two hints available. Here's question number four. In 1968, Tigers pitcher Denny McLean won both Cy Young and MVP awards as well and came back strong in 1969. In 1969, he led the league in shutouts, pitching a complete game without allowing any runs, and still holds the Tigers' all-time records for shutouts in a season. How many shutouts did Denny McLean have that year? Oh, can I ask for the hint? Yes, Helen, how about that first hint? 
It's the same number of home runs that Ty Cobb had when he won the Triple Crown in 1909. Well, that'd be nine then. <laughs> Helen? That is correct. It pays to listen to the fun fact. That is correct. Well done. Jay Keith, I'm starting to think that this is like, that Al Jean is not even breaking a sweat a little bit. <laughs> He's doing well. When you ask me questions where I'm the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, well, to be fair, if you had not been the guest, I think our first question might have been a tiny bit different, but. So we wanted we wanted to acknowledge that, and I know how much you loved Lou Whitaker. Fun fact, Denny McLean had nine shutouts to lead the league in 1969. In 2021, the league leader in shutouts had two. Game has changed a little bit since 1969. <laughs> All right, Al, here's question number five. You still have another hint available. In their entire history, from 1901 through 2021, the Detroit Tigers have played 18,757 regular season games. How many of those games have they won? I would guess 9,300. I think they're a little above 500. Helen? That is not correct. No, Nancy Cartwright with a chance to steal. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I think they've won um, 10,050. Helen, is it 10,050? It is not 10,050. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but not an unreasonable guess. I think if you'd split the difference, you might have gotten it. Uh, 9,446. 9,446. Uh, they are a little bit above 500, but a little bit more of a winning record than Al had mentioned. Fun fact, those 9,446 wins are good for 12th all time. Their 9,311 losses are also 12th all time. <laughs> wow. That's about right. That's about right. All right, Al, you still did pretty well in that round, but now here is your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. Prior to the 1984 season, the Tigers signed a free agent slugger who helped them to win the World Series. Then, the next year, in the 1985 season, this player led all of baseball in home runs, and also in a statistic related to his rate of home runs. For up to three points, who is this Tigers slugger? How many home runs did he hit in 1985? And what rate statistic related to home runs did he also lead the majors in with 12.6? I'm going to guess Daryl Evans, mm -hmm. uh, 40, and uh, home runs per nine innings. And home runs per nine innings. All right, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is a two-time All-Star and a home run champion and World Series champion with the Tigers. It's Daryl Evans. All right, this is fantastic. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Evans. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Are you kidding? This first time I was just listening. I learned so much about stuff that I had no idea. <laughs> so did we. Ah, it was great. Here's some more stats before we uh, talk more about your wonderful career. You were drafted five times. You ended your career with more than 2,500 hits, more than 400 home runs, more than 1,000 RBIs. You are 12th all-time in all of Major League Baseball and career walks. You're the first 40-year-old to hit 30 home runs, and you were called by statistics guru Bill James the most underrated player in baseball history. So what a, what a treat and an honor to have you join us, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I love hearing those words all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I would, too. <laughs> It, it makes you feel old, though, because, you know, that used to be and people kind of noob. Now it's the new generation is a little rougher. Yeah. You know, you've got to explain stuff to them and they go, no, that can't be right. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> Al, do you remember seeing Daryl Evans play? Well, I am proud to say besides that game uh, where they were 35 and 5, I was at game 5 of the 1984 World Series. Um, and wow, we were so happy when Daryl signed with Detroit. Uh, Bill James, as you quoted, said, 
when is Detroit going to get a good third baseman? <laughs> and they did. And we won. And it was amazing. Well, the game you talked about, the 40th, we were 35-5, and five, and we still have to pinch ourselves when we talk about that. I mean, nobody's ever come close to that. You remember what happened after that game in Anaheim when we won our went to 35-5, and five, so we won 17 in a row on the road, which mm-hmm. is another record that nobody will ever come close to. What did you do in the stands? All I remember is Trammell hit a home run, and I think Morris was the pitcher. Well, you know what was great? I don't know, 45, 50,000 people in Anaheim, visiting team. You guys gave us a standing ovation Aww. for a long time. <laughs> oh, I do that every game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. It yeah. was the same. We are looking around. What's going on here? So great. And, and winning the World Series. Are you kidding me? Getting into World Series. Yeah everybody's dream of course and then when you're there it happens too fast because you want to enjoy it more often and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff but i was so blessed because i got in anaheim or excuse me in san diego i got a i found a guy with a bunch of tickets i got to bring all my coaches and my family and all those people so many of the people that met so much to bring them and be able to go to the World Series game, let alone, and then you be part of it. Now, you were part of a special moment in baseball history. You were part of Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. Tell us about that. So in 1974, Hank Aaron was coming up on Babe Ruth's record. And I'm going, well, you know what? Wow, I got a chance to be on base. You know, maybe. I mean, what would be the odds of having something like that happen? And it happened. I was on base for a 700 home run. Oh. I was on base for a 713. I was on base for a 714. And then when he broke the record, 715. You was good luck charm. Well, you know what? I didn't remind him of that. I should have told him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the pressure was on me. I had to get on base every time. <laughs> yeah. so it seemed like he hit a home run every time up anyway, too. But just the thrill, because the whole country and actually the world, that was such a big moment. So, of course, that was back when you were playing for the Braves. You cut ahead to 1984. You're a free agent. You're deciding what team uh, to join. And I understand that the Yankees offered you more money than the Tigers did, but you chose to be a Tiger. Uh, why did you want to do that? Uh, I should have consulted with Al, you know. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> I just say God bless you for going to Detroit. <laughs> I actually did talk to your favorite player, Alan Trammell who I have this Hall of Fame hat right behind, sitting behind me. But I was a free agent, but I was 37 years old. And, you know, people tend to think when you're 30 years old that uh, you're on the edge and you're going to fall off the cliff and you can't play anymore. Well, I'd hit 30 home runs the year before, and there was only three teams that were really interested in me, and that was the Dodgers, my hometown team, but I hate the Dodgers, so I'm glad it didn't go there. <laughs> and my family wanted me to go to the Dodgers, but I didn't. And then the Yankees, I didn't because they only gave me a two-year deal. So then the Tigers, all of a sudden, they come in and, and offer me a three-year deal. Out of the blue, kind of. But I knew they were really good because they had lost to Baltimore by a couple games the year before. They had all those core guys with were, which are 27, 28 years old, that, you know, a couple of them Hall of Famers and Lou's going to be a Hall of Famer and all this great team. And what they needed the most was a left-handed hitting power guy. And um, they came after me and said, hey. 
So in 85, you won the home run title. You were the oldest player in AL history to win a home run title. You were the first player to hit 40 or more homers in each league. Were you trying to win the home run title? Was that a goal that you had set for yourself? You know, I tell people that the only difference between, so we play, we play six months, four weeks. So the math major, of course, it's 24 <laughs> weeks. So if you hit one home run a week, 24 home runs is a lot. And I got all this advice from Hank Aaron. Because like, well, you hit 40 all the time. How does that happen? Well, if you hit more, if you hit two a week, that's all. That's the only difference. And mm. so it seems like it might not be that hard, but obviously it is. All the ups and downs and you're hot for a while and you're not hot and all this. So it was, uh, I guess it was a realistic goal. Mm -hmm. And especially I learned how to hit in Tiger Stadium. We had the short ports, but it was 440 feet to center. Mm. So every time I hit the center, it was an out. You know, you got the <laughs> Olympic sprinter out yeah. there. It's not a hit. Yeah. You're out. So yeah. I tried to pull too much the first year. I had to learn the pitchers. And mm. I had a couple of streaks, just longer, really good streaks, where I hit three home runs in a week. And that three or four times during that year, and all of a sudden, it adds wow. up. Yeah, I'm close. <laughs> well, last thing I want to ask you about, I know you've stayed active with baseball. You've been doing some fantasy camps, and as well, you've worked with a certain team in Washington, D.C. It is not the Washington Nationals. Tell us about the uh, special team that you work with every once in a while in the Capitol. I live in Fort Texas here, and I was reading about when, um, as you all remember, back when the crazy guy came out and shot the nine of them while they were practicing baseball. One of the congressmen that's right next to me, Roger Williams, one of the guys got shot, and I read about him, and he said he played for Atlanta Braves. They have a game every year, the congressional baseball game, which is the Republicans against the Democrats. He offered me and said, hey, I'm the coach. These guys love baseball, and they do, just like any fan. Yeah. You know, they love to come on up and get to be with these guys, and I have been doing it for five years, and I go up. I'm going up next Tuesday again and just have fun with them and kid them and remind them that they're not very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's about joy and playing because they're older and, and, and you know, yeah. whatever. But, you know, you get to see them differently than the political side. It's a great event, and, of course, people can check it out. Uh, this year, I believe it's going to be in July. We'll have a link to uh, that congressional right. baseball team and the fundraising efforts that they do that uh, you're a Yeah, big-time big charity stuff. And, yeah. and they had last year like 30,000 people at the stadium. All right, well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the questions that we asked of Al. First, we wanted to know who is that Tiger slugger that signed as a free agent with the <laughs> Tigers in 1984, helped them win a World Series, and then in the next season led all of baseball in home runs. Helen, who did Al say? Al said. Daryl Evans. And? You didn't even hesitate. He didn't even hesitate. <laughs> I was impressed. Very good. That's a point for Al. Next, we want to know how many home runs did that player have to lead the majors in 1985? Helen, what did Al say? Al Jean said 40. And Mr. Evans? That's correct. That's yeah. correct as well. Another point, a nice round number, 40 home runs. And then finally wanted to know, in what statistic related to the rate of home runs did he also lead the majors that year with 12.6? Helen, what did Al Jean say? Al said, home runs per nine innings. And uh, Mr. Evans? No, that was not correct. It was close. But it's per at-bat. That's right, at-bats at per home so, run, yes, 9.2. So you just think... That I think Hank Aaron, I got to look this up again, hit like every 15 at-bats he hit home run for 23 years. Mm. Wow. 
So it's just like mind-boggling stuff what? because uh, anyway, so how good people are. Yes. Well, you, you were the best at it that year, but I'm sorry, no point there for Al. Al, before we let Daryl <laughs> Evans go, is there anything you'd like to ask or say to our expert? There's one story I heard about you that was great. I wanted to see if this is true. In 87, a young catcher came up, Matt Noakes, yes, and sir. they said that you really helped him out and tutored him. And then he started hitting all these home runs. Is that true? Well, I threatened him. You know, <laughs> but you know what you do see when you become one of the so I was I was 40 and when I first came up it was everybody from Hank Aaron to all the all the older players they all want you to pass it along because we're only as good as the worst player on the team so mm -hmm. they want everybody to be good so they give all this expertise to the young players mm -hmm. and then as you're getting it you become the teacher and the mentor so that's the kind of stuff that you do. And then, man, confidence has so much to do with it. And, and it was, I'm so proud of him. He's, he's one of my best friends. Oh, that's even, so great. Even, uh, I, I love hearing stories of camaraderie and, and support uh, among uh, baseball And they won players. the division this year. That's that right. year, last day of the season. Oh, my God, what a fantastic. great time. Wow. Daryl, it's been an absolute treat and honor to have you here. I know if people want to find out more about you or what you're up to, they can certainly Google Daryl Evans and check out the congressional baseball game that's going to be happening this summer. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. It's Daryl Evans. Real Thank thrill. you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Al, good luck to you. Thank you. All right. Helen, what is our score as we head into the final round? At the end of that round, Nancy Cartwright has five and a half points and Al Jean has eight and a half points. All right. Now it is time for a final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read 10 statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Nancy and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. Again, the answer to each statement is true or false. And you may notice a little Simpsons theme we have for you today. Here <laughs> we begin. Nancy, there's a famous singer named Jessica Simpson. True. That is correct. Al, Jessica Simpson's last name is Simpson. True. Correct. Nancy, Grammy winner India Ari's last name is Simpson. False. Incorrect. No, she was born India Ari Simpson. <laughs> wow. Al, someone with the last name Simpson is in The Village People. True. Correct. Nancy, that Simpson in The Village People is the construction worker. True. Incorrect. Al, <laughs> Al that Simpson in The Village People is the cop. True. Correct. You know your village people. That's right. It was Ray Simpson. Ray Simpson was the lead singer of the village people. And he is again. Nancy, the Simpson in the R&B duo Ashford and Simpson is a man. True. Incorrect. No, I'm sorry. Ashford is a man. Simpson is a woman. Al, the Simpson in Ashford and Simpson is named Kimberly. I think not. False. Correct. Nancy, the Simpson in Ashford and Simpson is named Valerie. Oh, gosh. False. Incorrect. No, she really is. <laughs> Al, Valerie Simpson of Ashford and Simpson is related to Ray Simpson of the Village People. False. Incorrect. No, they really are. <laughs> Nancy, Valerie and Ray Simpson are second cousins. True. Incorrect. Al, Valerie and Ray Simpson are first cousins once removed. True. Incorrect. And finally, Nancy, but if they were, you would know what that means now. <laughs> There we go. Let's give a nice thank you to Nancy Cartwright and Al Jean as Helen tabulates the final score. By the way, Valerie and Ray Simpson are sister and brother. All right, Helen, are you ready to announce our final score at the end of the game? I am at the end of the game, Jay Keith. Nancy Cartwright has six and a half points and Al Jean has 12 and a half points. Congratulations, Al Jean. You were the facting champion on Go Back go, Yourself. Al. Oh, very generous. Uh, congratulations from Nancy. Al, what will you do oh. with your championship? 
Uh, go to <laughs> spend my winnings on Detroit Tiger games. All right. <laughs> that seems like a very worthy cause. We're just going to wrap up by giving everyone here a chance to promote anything they might like to do. Uh, Nancy Cartwright, where can people find you and your work? Oh, gosh. Well, I have a website, nancycartwright.com, and I'm, I'm across the social media. You can find me there. The blue, blue check, it's, it's all legit. It's all legit. Well, we're certainly happy that we found you here on our show, Nancy Cartwright. Thank you Thank so much you again. Thank you so much. Uh, Al Jean, where can people find out what you're up to? Well, at Al Jean, and I just mentioned The Simpsons is on Fox uh, Sundays at 8, and um, uh, of course on Disney+. Plus. Excellent. Well, we're so happy that you joined us as well, Al Jean. Ladies and gentlemen, my hosting partner is the lovely, the talented, the Helen, the Hong, and Ms. Helen Hong. Where can people find you, Helen? You can uh, watch me interviewing my dad and hearing incredible dad stories on my YouTube channel, Old Korean Dad Stories and Sometimes Mom. And you can follow me on the socials at Funny Helen Hong. It's got to be Funny Helen Hong because that other at Helen Hong, she ain't funny. Don't she follow ain't her. She ain't funny. No. Nope. No. Don't do it. Don't uh-uh. do it. I mean, would it really cause you harm if they followed her also? No, it would. It would hurt. It would. Me. Okay. It would okay. Hurt Don't me. hurt Helen. It would emotionally <laughs> yeah. wound me. So, All right. No. Let's unfollow regular Helen Hong and double follow, as if that's possible, Helen Hong. <laughs> uh, and me, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Keith, on Instagram at jkeith.net, all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank Nancy Cartwright, Al Jean, Dr. Carly Wurzelbacher, Daryl Evans, and thank you for listening and supporting our show at MaximumFun.org. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. Like what you hear? Come see us live. It's happening Saturday, June 18th in Pasadena, California. Go to kpcc.org slash live for free tickets. Guests will be announced very soon. Meanwhile, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod, update our wiki at gofactorwiki.fandom.com, and buy our T-shaped shirt at maxfunstore.com. And give us a great review on your favorite podcast platform, like Phil underscore N underscore LeBlanc did on Podchat. He, she, or they said, hee-haw, what a delight. Jake, Keith, and Helen have become a regular part of my long drives. I actually look forward to 10-hour drives twice a month because they are riding with me. Aw, thanks, Phil underscore N underscore LeBlanc. We enjoy riding with you, too. Helen? <laughs> Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton and comes to you via transcription from various homes across the country. Questions were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. We are produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun senior producer is Laura Swisher. Associate producer, editor, and Kaiser Sose is Julian Burrell. Today's show engineer is Dave McKeever. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Research assistance provided by Adam Native. Quiz assistance provided by Clint Tauscher and Leora Saul with Michael Larson, GG, graduate gemologist, at estateappraiser.net. Promotional graphics by Eric Tran. Added support from Dave Bianchi and Christine Vallada. Special thanks to Nick Brennan, Shazat Shawan, and Rosemary Terenzio at Kivit. Mallory Moorhead and Michael Roach at Fox, Antonia Kaufman at Disney, Sophia Gill, Mark Diem, David Koff, and Jimmy Pardo. I've been Helen Hong. Let's go watch all the episodes of The Simpsons. Oh, God, it'll take us years, but it'll be fun. Worth it. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.